Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 1. We are reading verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what then shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that our minds are darkened that we know not your ways unless you reveal yourself to us. It is in your light alone that we see light. And so we come in dependence this morning. We come in dependence asking that you would send us your spirit and give us light and understanding and truth. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In her novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor tells the story of Hazel Motes. He's a convoluted and disturbed young man who's haunted by Christianity. Jesus seems to follow him around and hang out in the shadows, and he does everything he can to run from and resist this Jesus. Hazel's grandfather was something of an evangelist. Hazel wanted nothing to do with any of it because of his misconceptions of the gospel and his distortions of what Christianity really is. Early on, O'Connor notes this about Hazel. She says, the boy didn't need to hear it, speaking of the gospel. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. 
Hazel thought if he could avoid sin, then he would not have to reckon with Jesus, the necessity of him. And in O'Connor's wry and very ironic and bitter writing style, she's making this point to us, to what she considered to be a Jesus-haunted Southern culture. She's pointing out for those especially who would consider themselves to be religious, just how easy and tempting it is to underestimate the problem of sin. Moralistic forms of Christianity, they will speak of sin, but the tendency is to do one of two things. The first is that there's a focus of sin on a certain list of taboos, that is, things that are not to be done, however that list might be constructed. It is a list that allows you to manage sins and teaches you what to avoid. The second way that moralistic Christianity tends to function is it also can focus on corporate manifestations of sin. That is, rather than looking at the individual, it looks at history or social systems and structures. And so things like poverty or abortion or racism become the focus. It is all an attempt to make sin manageable. That is something that we can bring under our control. It reduces sin. And so it can be tamed with the proper commitment and the proper personal constitution. Then we have therapeutic forms of Christianity. They also will speak of sin. But the tendency inside of this variety of Christianity is that sin is a sickness. That is, it's a disease that afflicts us and makes us its victim. And so sin makes us unhealthy. And what we need to do is that we need to get free from that sickness, putting away the negative things of life so that we can be our true selves, positive, optimistic, happy, fulfilled, and satisfied. Sin is something that happens to us. And in these two varieties of Christianity that we find not in the history of Southern culture, but alive and well today, moralistic forms, therapeutic forms, we find something that rubs up against Romans 3 and can't wrestle with what is being presented here. Because here we don't have a moralistic view of human beings in which humans can improve themselves or reduce sin or a therapeutic view that we're just afflicted by sin. What we find in Romans 3 is that when we minimize the problem of sin, that we inevitably minimize the solution that God provides. A small view of sin will yield a small view of Jesus. And so Paul continues in Romans 3 to drive to his point. It's a point that began halfway through chapter 1 in which he began to speak of human unrighteousness and ungodliness. In the exchange that took place where the lie was substituted for the truth and humans began to worship created things rather than the creator. We saw that there are manifestations then of that great exchange. We've been handed over to any number of things. And that the Jewish community no doubt 
delighted in Paul's condemnation of the Gentiles. And then last week we discovered that he turns it upon them as well, that they are also under this same indictment. And so Paul now finishes and closes all of that argument that began halfway through chapter 1. He draws it up to a summary in verse 20 of chapter 3. And along the way, once again, we're confronted by the elemental problem of sin. And in order to appreciate what God is saying, it's important for us this morning once again to consider four aspects of that problem. We'll consider the expanse of the problem, the extent of that same problem, its implications for us, and then finally, we'll also consider the limit of that problem. Let's look at each. First, the expanse of the problem of sins. In verse 9, Paul asks the question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Last week we discussed that the Jewish nation particularly found a ground for boasting in two things. They possessed the Mosaic law, and that was a sign of their election by God. And so they boasted in the possession of that law. And that also contemporaries of Paul also boasted in their performance of that law. And that many of Paul's contemporaries would have then said that they could put a claim on God because they possessed his gift of the law and because they performed that law. And what they were failing to understand is none of that was necessarily to their advantage because they too were violators of the law. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, is Paul's answer. That what you boast in has become the source of your very own condemnation. The charge has been made on all. The indictment is over everyone's head, Jew or Gentile. All are under sin. It's a universal issue. It excludes no one. Paul then moves on in verse 10 to quote from two places in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, and Psalm 14, verse 1. He explains that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There are no distinctions here. There are no exceptions. All are indicted, all are tried, and all are guilty. But what exactly is the crime, though? What exactly is the crime that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of? It's critical to remember that God's charge against us is not a petty one for some Piccadillo sins that we've committed along the way of certain varieties. He doesn't fine us for minor infractions, things that we shouldn't have done. Rather, what we've seen in Romans 1 is that we claimed to be wise apart from God. And we struck out on our own. That this is the primal, this is the elemental 
human sin. It is a rebellion against God in which we seek to be autonomous and independent. This is what eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was all about. It was desire to be the master of good and evil. That is the one who judges what is right and what is wrong. The one who has opportunity to define reality. Rather than submitting to God, being the master of the one who explains what is right and wrong and gives us his wisdom, as God who is the one who defines reality, we wanted that for ourselves. It was to be our own Lord, our own master, independent and autonomous. This is the sin that Paul explains all of us participate in. Every one of us. And it takes on various shades and varieties. It looks like many different things. But all of us drink from this fountain. This is what corrupts us and this is what has polluted us. There's a universal extent to the problem. But we also must appreciate, second, the extent of that problem. That is how deep it drives in us. As we return to verse 10, we see that Jews and Greeks are told that they're under sin. It's important to capture that preposition under because it does indicate something as to where Paul will go in this letter. Because sin is presented to us here not just as individual acts, but as a personified force, a force to which humans are enslaved. And it's a force to which humans willingly enslave themselves, that they delight in it. Augustine perhaps catches it best. He says that we're bound by chains of our own making. This is what it means to be under sin. In Romans 6, Paul will present sin as a master, as one who holds us in slavery. And as slaves... There's nothing that's left untouched. Every part of our reality, every part of our lives is defined by that mastery. As you follow Paul's quotations from verse 11 to 18, this is what we find out about that mastery. First, in verse 11, we're told that no one understands that is, no one receives the revelation of God that's been given in the works of his hands. We've seen this in chapter 1, that we suppress that truth. The problem is not that God is not revealing himself. God is manifestly revealing himself in creation and all of its fullness and all of its bounty. But yet we suppress that truth and we hold it back. We reject the wisdom of God. And what happens is that sin in the rejection of that wisdom then corrupts the way that we think. Your reason is not neutral. It impacts our knowledge. No one understands. As verse 11 continues, we then see there's a problem with our appetites, our desires that no one seeks for God. That is not to say that people don't live with a sense of God and a sense of religion and some desire there. But what is being said is that no one seeks after the true God because we rejected him. We suppressed that truth. 
And so, yes, we then exchange things from the creation that we will worship because we will worship. The vacuum created by the exchange will bring us into obedience to something that we serve. But we don't want him. No desire. No one seeks for him. In verse 12, we read that we've all turned aside and that no one does good. That is to say that sin permeates everything, that even your good works are compromised by it. That sin is not some small problem that you can quantify. It's not just a certain thing you did. It's a power that controls you, and it infiltrates everything that you do, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and your motives. He's leaving you no place to hide. Like a glass of pure water that's been tainted by cyanide, nothing pure about it remains. Verses 13 through 17, he continues in his critique of human beings, and he moves to specific human actions. We learn here in verse 17 about the dangerous words of human beings. Our throats are like open graves, quotation from Psalm 5. Humans use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their words are poison. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then he moves from our words into our actions Their feet are swift to shed blood, that is, they run to injustice. They involve themselves in conflict. In their paths are ruin and misery. It's all summed up for us in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That yes, in every way, We have turned against God, exchanged the truth for a lie, then of course we turn against one another. That when we disorder that relationship with God, all of our relationships will then fundamentally be disordered. This is the human condition. It's the extent of the problem. And it's difficult to absorb. It is a critique that assaults your pride and my pride. To be told this is who we are under sin, controlled by it and delighting in it, bound by these chains of our own making. And how do you exactly know, though, that you struggle with that critique? You can ask yourself a simple question today, meditating on it throughout the afternoon. And that is just, what do you do when confronted? When someone brings wrongdoing to your doorstep, what is it that happens? Because the thing is, for each of us, we struggle with this critique because when wrongdoing comes, we tend to do one of two things. And the first is that we defend ourselves. And we defend ourselves by turning the accusation back around on the other person because we don't want to deal with the critique. They don't understand me, they don't quite get it, and so I need to defend by simply putting it back on them. 
Or there's a more subtle form of this that you can just simply call deflection. And that is where we simply attempt to move around the confrontation. That we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, I'm not as bad as them. It can't really be that serious. So I don't need to take this critique. We do so to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And friends, there are two subtle and sly moves that we tend to prosecute with regularity. In the Colson household, we have a current controversy surrounding the area in the kitchen where the sink is and the trash can is. There is more debate about who is the promiscuous user of cups and who overflows the trash can and who fails to put their dirty dishes in the dishwasher. And when asked... The three defendants in the dock who remain unnamed, they defend and deflect. And all the world of human sin is on revelation, manifested just there. And then the righteous judges of the situation have their own culpability in the matter as well. But friends, we can look at it comically, and yet it plays itself out tragically. Ruin and misery is their path. It's a bleak account of what it is to be a human under the control and power and mastery of sin. We can never underestimate the extent of the problem. Third, Paul will also take us into the full implications of the problem. In verses 19 and 20, this is what we we read. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." It was the habit of Paul's contemporaries to boast in the possession of the law and the performance of the law. And it was through those two things that many believed that they could justify themselves before God. That is, by their good works, out of their good works, that they could make a claim on God and obligate God to declare that they were in the right. Since I've done the law... God must justify me. It's the simple logic of legalism. But Paul is very clearly announcing that that's not the way God deals with us and works with us because of our sin. We are too compromised. We are too polluted. There is no way for us to justify ourselves out of our own goodness or out of our own good works that it simply will not work out that way. That God is a just judge, and he sees and he knows, and he knows the corruption, and he knows the pollution. Paul explains that the law is not a means for you to justify yourself, and why is that? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That the law condemns, it's a hammer. It's a microscope that reveals 
It's God's mean for pulling back the layers that allow you to see yourself truly and accurately. It exposes. And what's critical for us with the law is that in the law we have a mirror that allows us to know ourselves. Because what was lost in the great exchange that took place is we lost the knowledge of ourselves. That knowledge can only be according to God's knowledge. And yet we struck out to be wise and define ourselves and course everything about our lives, from our sexuality to our morality in all kinds of different places, is now turned upside down. We don't know ourselves. And so the law provides us an opportunity to see ourselves clearly in God's light, in God's knowledge. And it's there that we learn there is no ground or ability for humans to boast. There's no ability to justify yourself before God. None of us can put a claim on him. None of us can obligate him. That's the profound implications of Christian preaching. But finally, it's also critically important for us to recognize the limits of this problem. Now, as I say that, you may be asking, well, how are there any limits to the problem? You've just fairly well condemned us all, said that universally all of us have participated in this corruption. How are there any limits to it? The problem of sin is profound. It's deep. But what we also find at the beginning of Romans 3 is a complicated conversation in verses 1 through 8 in which Paul is dialoguing with a theoretical Jewish opponent. He asks a series of questions in those verses, interacting with that dialogue partner. It can be hard to follow, but let me summarize it for you quickly. He asks if there's any advantage to being Jewish. Because the Jews, after all, possessed the oracles of God. And so he answers, yes. They had the precepts and the promises of God. That God promised to Abraham that his descendants would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And those promises were furthered under Moses and then under David. That yes, there was advantage to being Jewish. Because they possessed the gospel in its early and shadowy forms. The promises of God were theirs. And it was through that Jewish family that blessing would come to all the ends of the earth. Israel was to be a light to the nations. They were to be a guide to the blind, we saw in chapter 2. But then what we know is that Israel, too, participated in that great exchange, that idolatry. They, too, were compromised by sin. The privileges of Israel were real, but those privileges had been squandered. And so this creates somewhat of a dilemma. The nation through which God promised to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth was now part of the problem. What was God going to do about that? 
How is God going to be righteous? That is, how is God going to keep his promise? His promise is that through Abraham's family and that seed, that blessing would come to the world. And yet that family is compromised. And so follow in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Then Paul asked the profound question, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Then the emphatic answer, by no means. What Paul is saying here is that God is faithful to every word that he has promised, to every word of his covenant. He's true, he's trustworthy, and he is reliable. That yes, the Israelite nation proved to be faithless. That they too were under the indictment of sin and the law only intensified that problem for Israel. And so the people who were to be the solution, bring blessing to the nations, they failed to do so. They are under the indictment as well. But God is not there wringing his hands, unable to do anything. That it doesn't cancel his faithfulness. That is his righteousness. And if you peek into verses 21 and 22. What we will unfold next week is that righteousness is manifested in Jesus. The culmination of all the promises of God were fulfilled there in him. And so, yes, friends, as we look at all the destruction of sin, the paths of misery that is created in our world, there is something stronger. There is something that is more true There is something that is more substantial. There is something that is more powerful and more pervasive than the reality of human sin. And that is the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. His commitment to keep that promise that was then kept and fulfilled when Jesus took on flesh and died on the cross and rose again. And he does it to manifest to us that righteousness now comes through faith, through trust in him that that reconciliation is more sure, that it's more powerful than any of human sin. And so, yes, there is a hard limit to human sinfulness, and it's called the grace of God, that human sinfulness cannot cancel out his grace, his purposes, his plans for his own. And so, yes, we see the expanse of human sin, And then we look at its extent, and that mirror is difficult. It offends us in every way. We look at the implications, and we throw our hands up in the air. What can we do? And the answer is nothing. But then we see the limit. The limit of sin is that the faithfulness of God cancels sin out. And he has revealed his righteousness in Jesus, his faithfulness to every one of his promises. And so for each of us, as we hear that verdict of guilty, as the indictment comes, as our mouths are shut in the presence of God, as we know our sins and our complicitness in all of this bondage to sin, we're not without hope. But our hope is not in anything human, not anything worked out by our hands, not any set of sins that we can manage or bring under our control. No, our one hope 
Our one hope in all of that is the righteousness that God has revealed in Jesus. And so we, in all of that misery, in all of that death, in all of that condemnation, have life and light because of God, because of what he has done in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, in the midst of hard truths, you do enable us to see ourselves by your spirit. May we catch a sight, a true understanding of what it means to be sinful before you. Yet in the midst of that, as we're driven into our own unrighteousness, keep us from despair. Grant us to see your faithfulness that overrides all of human unfaithfulness and that you have kept every word of your promise and fulfilled them in Jesus. And turn us to the righteousness of faith the righteousness that we have that is not our own, that belongs to Jesus, and that alone puts us in right relationship with you. Be at work in our midst. Teach us these aspects of sin, but better yet, teach us the deep knowledge of your grace that overrides it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.